Hello, and welcome to The Taproot, the podcast that digs beneath the surface to understand how scientific publications are created. In each episode, we take a paper from the literature and talk about the story behind the science with one of the authors. I'm Liz Haswell. And I'm Ivan Baxter. And in this episode, we talk with Jeff Russell Barra, a professor at UC Davis. We discuss a modestly recent paper that illustrates the pros and cons of planning authorship lists in advance. We have a really honest discussion about publishing in high-impact journals as a pre-tenure professor and how his lab members made deliberate trade-offs in work-life balance to get an important paper published. The paper is Hufford et al., Comparative Population Genomics of Maize Domestication and Improvement, published in Nature Genetics in 2011. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, uh, welcome to the Taproot Podcast, Jeff Rosselbara. Uh, just to give you guys a little bit of background on Jeff, he started out uh, in the University of California system, uh, where he got his BA and master's degree in botany. And then he went and did a a few years in Mexico as a professor du Asintura. Is that a, did I say that right, Jeff? Probably not. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> can you can you tell us tell you uh, so, so can you say it correctly and tell us what it was? So after my master's, I, I moved to Mexico and I was uh, a professor at UNAM in Mexico City, and I taught botany. Ah, so okay. I was just sort of an adjunct professor there teaching uh, teaching botany. Okay, and then and then went back and got your PhD from right. Georgia. And then you were a postdoc at the University of California at Irvine, uh, and then an assistant associate and full professor at the University of California at Davis, where you reside today. Uh, Jeff has uh, multiple uh, awards, uh, most importantly, probably the corn pun trophy from the Genetic Society of America. I was um, hoping you would mention that. <laughs> I'm going to need to hear more about that. And has served on many editorial boards uh, uh, and is a, a really uh, fantastic resource for our community. Um, and one of the things I will just say up front is that for the aspiring scientists who are trying to figure out how to get through the process of applying for jobs, applying for grants, Jeff is collecting on a GitHub site the successful grant proposals, successful job applications from a large number of researchers. And that's just a really fantastic resource. And we will definitely be putting that link in the show notes. So, all right, Jeff, welcome to the Taproot podcast. We're going to be talking you. about your 2012 paper uh, with uh, first author Matt Hufford. And we usually like to start this with uh, you giving us just a, a very brief introduction to the paper before we start really getting into it. So go ahead and tell us about the paper. Yeah, so I've been interested in plant domestication for some time, um, and maize domestication in particular. And there's been quite a bit of work on maize domestication, um, including, for example, a really brilliant paper by Stephen Wright and Brandon Gout uh, in 2005. Uh, but what that work had, had uh, been missing, mostly due to limitations of technology, was the ability to look at lots and lots of loci across the genome, um, essentially genome-wide analyses. Uh, there's been some uh, evidence, er, early work from 
George Beadle and others had suggested that you could essentially domesticate maize with five large effect genes. And that was evidence based on segregating F2 population. Um, and so there's this idea that there are these large effect genes that control most of what we see in domestication. Um, and many of these have been cloned with some beautiful work from John Dobley's lab. But we really wanted to, to understand sort of uh, how much of the genome has been under selection, because you could imagine that many of the loci that have been selected uh, may not show up in obvious phenotypes that we think about when we think about corn domestication, like ear size or, or branching or something. And so we set out to, with a large group of collaborators, uh, sequence uh, a number of teosinte genomes. So teosinte is the wild ancestor of domesticated maize and a number of uh, maize genomes. And one of the, the nice things that we did here that hadn't been done very often in previous papers is we sequenced both modern inbred lines and land races. So land races are these traditional open pollinated varieties that uh, currently people are still cultivating today in fields in Mexico and throughout the Americas. Uh, but they're heterozygous plants, they're um, uh, outcrossing, so very different than the sort of hybrids that we think about in, in the U.S. Midwest. Uh, and so we set out to look using population genetics and expression to identify loci in the genome that were under selection, uh, how strong that selection was, and was that affecting gene expression, and where those loci were, what kind of loci those were, et cetera. So that's the sort of big picture view. And and so you were able to identify fairly large regions of the genome that were involved in domestication and also those that were involved in what you guess you call improvement, which is sort of after domestication, but the work of breeders, the work of uh, over the last half century. Is that right? So we wanted to distinguish sort of selection by modern breeding. Uh, from that that happened during the process of domestication. So that's why we're comparing these traditional land races to Teosinte to get at domestication and then modern inbreds to the land races to get at improvement. And one of the main findings and consistent with stuff that uh, uh, the Wright et al. paper had found was that lots and lots of loci in the genome, hundreds and hundreds of loci show evidence of selection. Many uh, of these show stronger evidence of selection than some of the large effect QTL uh, like Teosinte branched one and things that, that we know about from QTL studies. So does that mean that those those um, classic George Beadle experiments where he only identified five chromosomal loci, is that wrong or just an oversimplification or how does this like add yeah, to that's a, that work? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it's that his five loci is a bit uh, oversimplified. So what he did was he crossed maize and teosinte and made an F2 population of about 50,000 plants. And oddly enough, none of this has ever been formally published. He sort of wrote it up in a, a blog post, if you will, uh, <laughs> of the day in uh, a letter, but none of the data for this has ever actually been published. Um, so he had an F2 of something like 50,000 plants and he finds, I think it's one out of every 500 has an ear that looks either like Teosinte or looks like maize. And so based on that sort of rough morphological by eye characterization of this plant looks Teosinte like, this plant looks maize like, uh, and using some simplifying assumptions about Mendelian segregation, he comes up to the conclusion of somewhere between four and six genes uh, are, are involved. But of course, 
that's a very sort of gross level morphological, uh, this looks like teosinte versus this looks like maize. And so I think the real uh, difference is uh, sort of much more nuanced and things that in terms of physiology and flowering and, um, and all these quantitative uh, characters uh, that probably were, were not well considered in that study. So I need to update my um, class slides, <laughs> what you're telling me. <laughs> I actually usually start off with that beetle uh, uh -huh. uh, experiment because it's a nice experiment that intro genetic students can understand. And you can, it, it's neat that you can infer something about the number of genes based on segregation in F2. Yeah, exactly. But I do think it's a it's an oversimplification. Right. of the text. So yeah. So how did the how did the idea for this paper even come about? So um, this was part of a big collaboration with the Maze Diversity Group, uh, and the Maze Diversity Group that I, I wasn't uh, formally a part of at the time um, had done uh, Maze HapMap One. So. Uh, uh, study on the diversity, sort of genome-wide diversity in, in the NAM, the parents of this important mapping population, the NAM population. And here they wanted to expand to a broader uh, diversity in HapMap2, and they wanted to include Teosinte to look at diversity in Teosinte as well. Um, and the group approached me about uh, making the comparison between modern inbred lines or modern lines and Teosinte to study domestication. Um, and from my perspective, uh, you know, I didn't have to pay for the data, and so as a young uh, assistant professor, the possibility of getting a whole bunch of, of data to do exactly the kind of study that I've been wanting to do for a long time um, was pretty hard to, to pass up. So you say a, a maize diversity group. What is that? What, what do you mean group? Sorry. So so the maize diversity group is uh, uh, a group of PIs that have had um, NSF plant genome funding now, I think, 20 years or so. Um, in the current iteration, there are eight of us on, on the grant. Ed Buckler has been the lead PI of the grant. And so the, the group, I think it's informally the Maze Diversity Group, the website the, the, that uh, uh, talks about the group is panzia.org. I get it. So by group, you mean group of PIs on yes. a big grant. Right, yeah, right. got it. So that's, um, so that's, so they approached you and that's part of the, that's part of the the author list, and, and and so they said we have we're going to be sequencing these lines. Would you like to do the analysis? Um, so they approached me, and and I said, well, so I'd like to do it, but um, they they weren't going to sequence any land races, and I said I will do it only if you guys sequence a bunch of land races, um, uh, which in retrospect may have been um, presumptuous on my part, but. Um, uh, ask them, I would like to sequence some land races so that we can actually get at this domestication versus improvement difference. Um, and there's where we brought on a number of the authors on the list from uh, B, uh, BGI who did the sequencing on the, the uh, land races. Um, and so they agreed to do the sequencing on the land races. And this is how we put together this big author list of a bunch of people from BGI, a bunch of people from the Maze Diversity Group, and a bunch of people in my lab who did the analysis. That sounds like a that sounds like a challenging endeavor. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things that that we did for authorship, which has uh, both pluses and minuses, we actually wrote out an MOU um, even before we had 
really started analysis on the paper with uh, who would be uh, joint first author and who would be joint last author um, and sort of which PIs would be on the on the project. And of course, the author list evolved to some degree uh, after that, but we actually had a formal signed MOU where everyone said, yeah, okay, we all agree that this is what we're going to do. I'm sorry, assigned what? MOU, Memorandum of Understanding. Oh, I don't. I have. I have never heard that before. And I, I'm just now noticing that there are four joint first authors on the paper. Yeah. So the the reasoning for that is in the MOU we said that someone from my lab would be joint first author, and someone from BGI would be joint first author. Um, and uh, you know, and one then of the there were four. Well, so. Uh, 98% of the analysis was done by the three authors in my lab. <laughs> and so I, I sort of fought to make uh, those folks joint first author because um, both of them really put a lot of effort and work and a year of their life into this paper. So, so you, I mean, I think this is a really strategic question that you had to deal with here because as we said, so this is a paper in Nature Genetics, which has uh, many people consider one of the most influential journals. And so there is a large pressure to, you know, get a paper like this in this, you know, in a journal like this, which it means you're compressing a ton of data and analysis into a very short format. And I guess if you're signing a memorandum of understanding before you even write the paper, you've already sort of committed this approach. Do you think in retrospect, you know, is that how often would you do that again, I guess, is one question. And, and or, or thinking about, you know, having some sort of common paper that gets this out there and then your lab can write a paper about what you did. Yeah, so I've actually rarely taken this approach since. Um, so in the, in the time since, I've tried to be pretty clear with folks in the lab that, you know, I'm happy to take this approach. I'm happy to shoot high uh, and go for uh, fancy pants journals. Um, but the, I think there's they're high impact, right, Ivan? Oh, that's the word. Yeah, right? high impact, uh, I think, is the word you're looking for there. Yeah, sorry. But but that there's, you know, there's a high risk involved uh, in that you could, uh, you know, send a paper to science, nature, nature, genetics, and, you know, work your way down the list in whatever order you choose and lose six months of your life uh, doing reformats and slight rewriting um, and end up not getting it in any of the, those journals that you want um, versus, you know, from the get-go writing it in a longer format that you could send to uh, a, a more traditional or I guess a, a, a discipline focused journal. Um, and I think it depends a lot on the person in the lab, whether they want to do that, right? So for the first first author on this paper for Matt Hufford, it really made a difference for him career-wise to have this in nature genetics. And that was why he was willing to be so gung-ho behind this. Um, and I've certainly had folks in the lab since then that uh, because of where they want to get a job or other pressures, they really feel that they need a high impact paper. And so we try to shoot higher for, for those and with all of the, the risks of having to rewrite things in short format, et cetera. I mean, the reason I took it on um, was I saw it as a great opportunity for my career. 
um, I was pretty clear with folks in the lab. You know, I sat, no, no, none of the first authors were hired to work on this. Um, they were hired for, for other things. And I was pretty clear with them. We had multiple conversations about, um, look, I, you know, I would like to do this, but uh, if we're going to do this, it's going to be intense. It's going to be a lot of work. It's going to affect your, your work-life balance. Uh, it's going to be a rough ride. Um, I think it could be worth it career-wise, uh, but don't do it unless you think you can really be all in. Um, so I, I, you know, I wanted to do this for my own reasons, but I also didn't want to be making somebody's life miserable, uh, at least without them knowing ahead of time that that, that would happen. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, so this was a paper where I wanted to shoot big for my own career reasons. The, yeah, the thank you for being honest about that. I mean, I think it, uh, I think it really, I think it's great when senior PIs are, I mean, I feel like this is happening to me too. I can be a lot more flexible about, in my own mind, about where different stories are going. But yeah, certainly it's when harder was, when you're staring yeah. down the, the barrel of tenure. Yeah, maybe, it really may, is maybe. different. Maybe can you contextualize this for us, Jeff? When the, you were approached, you said, was this was 2010 you were approached or 2009? Yeah, this was 2010. Uh, so I'd been an assistant professor for just over a year. Oh, my okay. gosh. Uh, and I saw this as a, as a good opportunity. And, and, I mean, it certainly did help me. Um, I, I got tenure the year this came out, I think. Or so you, think you went up right. for tenure early, partially because you had this paper right. coming out. Yeah. So for you, this was a very easy, it seemed like, and, and the fact that you were getting a, a large amount of data for free, I think is probably another thing that went into there. That you, so you didn't have to spend a tremendous amount of startup funds to get what at the time was probably hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of sequence? Well, I did pay three postdocs for a year and a half to, to work on this paper. <laughs> So it wasn't it wasn't free, but um, right. the data was free, right? And and it, you know it was a, a beautiful data set, uh, and and I really did feel you know not just that we wanted a high impact paper, and uh, but also that if I'm asking uh, BGI and and these collaborators, I'm saying I'll do this if you you know spend tens or maybe it was a hundred thousand, I can't remember, but but huge chunks of money on generating this data that I want that I really owed it to them to do as good a job as we could on the analysis. So before, I, I want to follow up on the work-life balance questions, but before we get off uh, off of this sort of the high-impact question, and the, the fact that you had the memorandum of understanding with the authorship and all those issues, I mean, I think it's always great, and I think for young people, having an agreement, at least an idea of how a project with collaborators is going to go forward and what people is going, are going to do from each part of the collaboration. And, and maybe where the paper will go uh, is a great idea. You shouldn't just start working and then later assume you're going to be first, last author. But I do think it's really hard <laughs> to know upfront how to say this is going to be the paper until you've done the research. Um, yeah, that's an awkward balance. So I, I certainly agree, and I try every time I think that we're coming close to something that could turn into a paper, to sit down and say, okay, you know, who are going to be the authors? Who's going to be first author? Uh, how do you know how are the collaborators playing? Because you don't want somebody to 
put in, put their all into a paper, uh, you know, for a year of their life and then to discover, wait, I thought I was going to be first author, but now suddenly I'm third author and the paper is going to somebody else's lab. And so you want to avoid those situations. And you also want to avoid the situations where someone thinks that this is going to be a nature paper and this is going to be their, their career move. And it, you know, you end up sending it someplace very, very different. Um, so trying to keep those expectations and those understandings, uh, it, it keep, keep people's understanding of what what is likely to happen to the best of your ability to predict these things uh i think is is a good idea yeah. i was just i was gonna say i'm like i'm actually writing that down as a to-do list for myself <laughs> right now <laughs> have conversation with authors uh, yeah I, I i haven't done an mou on papers since then just because you know i don't think you can predict with sufficient accuracy to say this is definitely what it's going to be and you know, uh, uh, Sue, you're going to be first author and Bob, you're going to be co-first author um, because it does, you know, end up that sometimes someone does most of the work, but someone else comes in and does all of the writing. Right. Um, and the MOU can sometimes make that difficult. So a, a, an interesting, uh, on this paper, Peter Morell is, I think, like 16th author on the paper or something like that. Uh, and he didn't do any of the analysis on the paper, but he played a really major role in the writing of the manuscript. So we wrote the first draft and he came in and told us most of it was really bad uh, and helped us restructure and helped. I mean, he wrote a, you know, a, a sizable chunk of, of the paper is heavy edits or, or help writing from Peter. And he's somewhere stuck in the middle of the author list because we had sort of predefined what the ends of the author list were going to look like. Right. Yeah. Um, and I and I think you know there's I, I have been in many situations where uh, I think it's really good to say that the person who finishes and writes the paper uh, should be close to the first author. I mean I think that you know there's so many people have so many projects that are sitting there unwritten up, and to me, uh, if you leave a project and don't finish it, you you, you the logic of having the right to be the first author um, starts to diminish pretty rapidly because we need the paper to get out. And uh, right. it's worth nothing if it's not published. So the other thing that that um, I I find is interesting and maybe counterintuitive to some people on authorship. We have a paper, for example, um, last year in Nature Plants, and one of the authors is an undergrad in my lab, and there's absolutely nothing in the paper writing analysis zero that you can point to that he did. Um, and the reason he's an author is because uh, I feel pretty strongly that there are lots of times there's sets of analyses you want to do um, and they don't end up making the final cut into the paper. So in this case, we wanted to do a whole bunch of simulations. Uh, he spent many months doing all of the simulations, doing everything we asked of him. And then we decided, you know what, these are data, the results don't look that great we want to cut it out of the paper. Um, but he had done those simulations and all that work because we had said, if you do this, we'll make you an author on the paper. And right. so it seems reasonable to me, he should still be an author on the paper, uh, even if the stuff that he actually did didn't end up uh, making the, the final cut. That's an interesting point of view. I, I'm guessing some people wouldn't share that. Yeah, I mean, I mean I you know, when you when you write to when you when you write a paper, you have to say this person did this, this, and this. There isn't a part that says contributed to you know 
parts of it that ended up on the editing room floor, right? Right. I mean, in this case, you know, it's easy to say he contributed to analysis and uh, of the data. It's just that the analyses he did didn't end up making it in the paper. Yeah. I mean, I think this is that's it, you know, it's also hard to define how what a paper ends up. So it, at one point, you felt like you needed to know the answers of his simulations to feel comfortable publishing the paper. Right. right. So Jeff, uh, let's let's move to the um, this idea of work-life balance. So you mentioned that you sort of laid out to your people that they were going to lose some of that work-life balance. Um, how did yeah, you know? So how did you know that was going to happen? And and what were? How did you have that discussion with them? So from you know, I I suspected and I was right that from past experience working with, with this group of collaborators. It's a big group of collaborators. They're all uh, extremely competent. They know what they're doing and um, they move quickly. Uh, and although you know, I thought a lot about domestication, uh, we'd never worked with data sets of this size before. Uh, and a lot of this was, was new to us. Um, and so I expected that it would be uh, a lot of effort on our part to keep up with uh, the rest of the group. Um, and in order to do that, uh, do it quickly and get a, and the amount of work we needed to do, I was pretty sure upfront that this would be uh, a fairly mammoth undertaking. Um, and I was pretty clear with people in the lab uh, saying, look, you know, totally understand if you don't want to do it. Nobody is being asked to do it if they don't want to. Uh, they all had other projects to work on. Um, but if you would like to be part of this, I'm going to ask that you're all in because uh, the project isn't going to work. Um, and I will actually, I had this conversation with them before I agreed to do the paper um, because I didn't want to agree with collaborators that I was going to do something that I didn't think that I could follow through with. Right. Um, and enough folks in the lab were interested and said that they were willing to, to do that. Uh, and it turned out I was right. It, it was pretty, I think it, you know, it was it was hard for them. So Matt Hufford, for example, was living 45 minutes away at the time, and we had weekly meetings at 6 a.m. and he would have to get up at 4 a.m. to make be in here in the meetings. Um, it was lots and lots of hours of work. Um, I think a lot of gray hairs for for some of us involved. Uh, and but you know, I think they were all okay with it because they were sort of warned ahead of time that this was going to be a pretty mammoth undertaking. In fact. Um, Tanya Pukiyervi, the one of the co-first authors, initially had said, based on those sort of dire warnings, that she wasn't interested in being involved, and then later got kind of excited by the data and jumped in. So, you th do you think? Would you would you say? I mean, obviously for you, this is a a win, right? Um, but how do you feel? Do you feel that all those authors would also say it was worth it to them to get up at four a.m. Um, I guess first author guy it. for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and he took the really the brunt of the um, uh, of, of of the work life balance sort of uh, or imbalance I should say, um, and I, I also tried to be clear with uh, uh, with them upfront about that that you know although they're four first authors co first authors and they can all say on their CV that they're co first authors. Um, as we saw, you know, Ivan wasn't aware that there were co-first authors, and the paper is always cited as Hufford 2012. And so I said, you know, Matt, if you're going to be the first author, I'm going to, the first co-first author, I'm going to push you harder and 
be meaner and you're you will have more imbalance of the work in work life imbalance than than the others and um i think he was a, he was okay with that and i think he would uh, or he has said that uh, it, it was worth it for him career-wise. Whether or so, not he would do it again, I don't know. So where is Matt now? He's an assistant professor at Iowa State. Oh, so, yeah, that seems like a useful trade-off. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there were some there were some low points. I, I actually asked him for permission to tell the story, but one of the um, our 6 a.m. meetings, uh, I couldn't come. I, I think I was sick, or I can't remember what the deal was, but I couldn't come, and so he was there by himself at 6 a.m. So he'd driven 45 minutes from Sacramento to come in at 6 a.m. on a conference call with BGI and all of our collaborators. He'd been a postdoc for uh, less than a year at the time. And it was a particularly, turned out to be a particularly stressful conference call because the collaborators were asking him really tough questions about how we were doing the pop gen analysis. So he's fielding questions from all these PIs. Uh, and at the time, our building was undergoing construction, and they would come in in the morning and jackhammer in the building. Oh my so they're jackhammering in the background, uh, and they had removed all the ceiling tiles from the conference room where we did the, the calls. And because of the uh, construction, we also had a cockroach infestation. And so what would happen is he's trying to field calls about population genetics uh, and maintain his sort of... Uh, sanity or seriousness and they jackhammer and cockroaches would rain down from the ceiling fall onto the table and then they run away while he's trying to do all of this and by the time i made it in at 8 a.m uh he was uh he was a bit shook up um so you know there, there definitely were difficulties i guess i'm so and and you know so it sounds like you know you you went forward knowing that this was going to be asking a lot of your people and and probably you did it you know we we uh, i think we we talk a lot about how important work-life balance is at some point does it it's, but to get this like really high profile thing you had to sacrifice and matt particularly had to to sacrifice so I don't think it always turns out that way um we've certainly had high profile papers since that didn't require this level of uh of, of commitment um i think the difference was we knew that this had to be fast and we knew this was something that was new to us and would be um a, a huge amount of work yeah i mean i guess that's my question is that if you had said i'm willing to do this but i'm not willing to ask my people to give up their their lives to do it so we were going to do it on a different schedule than what you propose i mean part of that's really hard to do as an assistant professor i can imagine i can't probably imagine that conversation um i can imagine saying that now that i have been retained in my position that i would just say like i'm happy to work with you guys and but you know my people have kids they have life outside and I'm not sure we can meet your timeline. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know how that conversation would have gone. It's not the case that they had a predefined timeline that this had to be done by July. Uh, so, I, you know, I suspect that and, and, and all of the collaborators on there, they're, you know, are good, decent people who also value work life balance. So, I, you know, I don't think any of them would have said uh, you must push your people to do to do this way. But um 
I think that, you know, my prediction that we were going to have to move fast in order to be able to keep up with everybody else, given the, the expertise and the amount of people working on it, on the companion paper and other aspects of the project. Um, I knew that uh, I didn't think we could do this without that, you know, without that sacrifice. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it's interesting to just acknowledge that sometimes in a scientific life, there's going to be a part where you're going to work more than you maybe would choose to in the, that you can work, would you need to work more than, uh, might be sustainable for you in the long term, but that there may be times when you have to uh, get up at four in the morning to get something accomplished, right? I mean, I think that's the key part about your story isn't that you were like, okay, postdocs, this is how you're going to be behaving if you want to be in my lab. It was more like, here's an opportunity. Here is the price you're going to pay. Do you want to take the challenge? I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that it, it's fair in the sense that you, you shouldn't need to have uh, to sacrifice work life to get, you know, make big scientific accomplishments. I think in this situation, the only way my lab could have been part of this project was mm-hmm. to do that. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I, but I, I also, so I, I agree with all that, but I also see other PIs saying, well, my lab is really only going to publish high impact papers. And so if you want to be in my lab, it's not that you're going to have a period where you have to really work this and, and, and work that hard. It's that that is the norm and that's expected because my lab is a high-impact lab. And that's the culture that I see as toxic. And if we say, oh, well, we don't want the toxic culture, but occasionally we, we have to just say, no, we're going to switch into that mode – it doesn't. I, I. I'm. I don't know how to reconcile those two things, and I worry that we can say we don't want the toxic culture where you're, you have no work-life balance and you're working all the time, but if we don't, if we then just say, well, but to get the high-impact paper, you have to to overwork. But I don't. I, I don't think you do have to do that work to get the high-impact paper. I mean, I don't think so. You clearly requires a bunch of work, but I don't think it has to be. A sacrifice in terms of work-life balance. I mean, we've had other high-impact papers that uh, didn't require anything like that—that that sort of sacrifice. I think the difference here was that it was a big collaborative team of lots of people, and I really did not want to be, as the new assistant professor on the on the block, the one slowing everybody down. Yeah, I think the question is just figuring out how we make it so even those big collaborative things don't need that too right (laughs) that's the other way of thinking about it this has been a really interesting conversation and like all good science brings up more questions and answers jeff thank you so much for this conversation we'll end the way we always do which is telling people how to get a hold of us if they want to continue to talk have a conversation on twitter jeff how can people reach you you can find me on twitter and jay rossi barra um it's the cool cow with the sunglasses yeah, I'm happy to be contacted by email or Twitter or uh, um, or anything else. Okay. So that was Jeff's answer to where can we find you. Mm. Liz, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at at E. Haswell. And you can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And if you want to email Liz and I about the podcast, we have our own 
podcast email address. That is taproot at plantae.org. And with that, thank you very much, Jeff. That was a really fantastic conversation. Great. Well, thanks for inviting me. It was fun. This is the sixth and final episode of the pilot season of The Taproot, and we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Liz, what do you think we learned this season? Well, Ivan, I think we learned a lot about our fellow plant biologists and how they go from an exciting idea to having a published paper. In the process, as you may have noticed, we also learned a lot about putting podcasts together. You can say that again. Things are still in the planning stages, uh, but it's likely that we'll be starting to work on season two of The Taproot very soon, and we hope you'll join us then. If you like this episode and haven't listened to the other five, yes, five other podcast episodes that we have, you can find them on iTunes or Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Um, while you're there, you can subscribe and any new episodes will be delivered to you when they launch. You can also rate and review the podcast, which helps other people find it. But really, the best way for other people to find it is for you to tell your friends and colleagues about it if you liked it. The Taproot is a production of Plante and ASPB and is produced by Mary Williams, Susan Cato, and Melanie Binder and edited by Tasneem Bufafel. Thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye.